And as we resume our survey of the Gospel of Matthew, it'd be helpful to review where we've been and where we are at. Matthew was a tax collector in Capernaum, whom Jesus called first to be his disciple and then appointed as his apostle, and then whom the Holy Spirit inspired to author the first book of our New Testament. Matthew begins his gospel by recounting the, gospel, the genealogy and the birth of Jesus, then recording the visit, of the, the visit of the Magi and the flight to and the return from Egypt, and then the baptism by John the Baptist, the temptation by the devil in the wilderness, and then after the arrest of John the Baptist, Jesus returned to Galilee and then moved to Capernaum where he began his public ministry, first by calling four fishermen to be his followers that he could train them to become fishers of men, because Jesus' method of reaching the world with the gospel was by making disciples who would make disciples who would make disciples, and now we are the disciple-making disciples of those disciples. We get a picture of Jesus' early itinerant ministry at the end of chapter 4. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And then we see these crowds following after Jesus at the beginning of chapter 5. And Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up on the mountain and sitting down, his disciples came to them and he began to teach them. And this teaching is recorded in Matthew 5 through 7, which we know as the Sermon on the Mount, the most influential sermon in history. And so we've slowed our survey to savor just how rich this message is as Jesus opens first with the Beatitudes divine blessings associated with spiritual virtues that characterize citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their sins, for God shall comfort them. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall be called, or for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus directs his words directly to the disciples. Blessed are you when men slander you and persecute you and do evil towards you for my sake and for the sake of righteousness. But we're not to be bullied into silence and we're not to be cowed into conformity but rather we're called to be salt and light. And so Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, that we are to preserve the good that's here, and we are to purify the world around us. We are to be light, and we're to let our light shine before men in such a way that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And this ends the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And now in 517, Jesus begins the body of his message, which is going to go to the middle of chapter 7. And we could recognize this because their book ended, the beginning and end of the body of his message, with references to the law and the prophets. 5.17 says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. 7.12 In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. So we get these bookends that before there were chapters, before there were verses, before we had subheadings in our study Bibles, there would be these verbal cues to indicate segments in Scripture. And in between this section, Jesus is going to give the main body of his message, which is about true righteousness in God's eyes and how that relates to the law and the prophets. 
So our text today is going to introduce this main section where Jesus' scripture and true righteousness are presented in verses 17 through 20. That first of all, Jesus came to fulfill scripture. Secondly, Jesus commands deference to scripture. And then Jesus construes, defines what true righteousness looks like in God's eyes in relation to scripture. Look at verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now with this caution about not thinking that Jesus came to abolish isn't because of anything that he said, but because of what he's about to say. And as he talks about what God views as true righteousness in contrast with how the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes were demanding and interpreting righteousness, they're going to say to him, you are abolishing God's law. In fact, when Jesus describes how the Sabbath is intended for man and not man for the Sabbath, they're going to say, you came to abolish, you're abolishing the Sabbath. And so Jesus front loads what he's about to say that we'll review in the coming weeks by saying, I did not come to abolish. And the law and the prophets is a shorthand way of saying all of the Hebrew scriptures. So the Jews break the Hebrew scriptures into three main parts. The Torah, the Nevi'im, or the writings, and the Ketuvim, the prophets. And so it's sometimes abbreviated the Tanakh. So if you want to show, if you're dialoguing with a, a Jewish person, don't refer to it as the Old Testament, that's viewed as pejorative. You can say the Hebrew Scriptures, or if you want to show yourself in the know, just say the Tanakh, the Torah, the Writings, and the Prophets. And many times in the New Testament, the entire Old Testament is summarized with the words, the Law, the Writings of Moses, and the Prophets, the Writings that came after Moses. Philip said in John 1, We have found him of whom Moses in the Law and also the Prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Matthew 22, when Jesus is in the temple describing what the two great commandments of the Old Testament were, he said, on these two commands depend the whole law and the prophets. After his resurrection, when he's walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he says, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. At the end of the book of Acts, when Paul is in jail in Rome and he's teaching those who came, it says that Paul was trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. Uh, Romans 3.21 says, But now apart from the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God is revealed. So when Jesus says the law and the prophets, he means all of the Hebrew scriptures of what we commonly know as our Old Testament. And Jesus says, I did not come to abolish it. It's not Jesus versus Moses. It's Moses then Jesus. It's Moses until Jesus. Because Jesus came to fulfill the law. And in at least three senses. First, Jesus fulfills all of the messianic prophecies and types that were revealed to Moses and the prophets. This is a major motif in Matthew's gospel. He says in 122, All this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the Lord the prophet. That the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I will call my son. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called 
a Nazarene. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah. Further on in the Gospel of Matthew, he's going to continue to emphasize that Jesus fulfills all the prophecies and types that were anticipated and prophesied of the Messiah. He says in 8.17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. 12.17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. 13.35, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. All this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures through the prophets. Everything that was prophesied of Jesus from Genesis 3.15 about the seed of Eve who would crush the serpent's head until Malachi chapter 4, the end of our Old Testament, with the coming of the forerunner of Elijah, all of those have been fulfilled by Jesus, which is why we listen to and heed Jesus and not any other religious figure. We don't follow the teachings of Joseph Smith or Mohammed, or the Buddha, or Confucius, or anyone else. Because only Jesus is the one who fulfilled all of the prophecies of Scripture in the specific prophecies and in the typologies, in the anticipations, in the prefigurements. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the messianic predictions of the Old Testament because Jesus is the Messiah. Secondly, Jesus fulfills the requirements of the law and the prophets. He's going to say at the end of Matthew 5, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, which is problematic because none of us are perfect, but Jesus is. God's requirements are perfection because God is perfectly righteous and none of us are perfectly righteous, but Jesus is. The Bible says that he was the unblemished lamb, spotless, and therefore, we have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet unlike us, is without sin. That was the point of the temptation account, that unlike Adam, our forefather, Jesus resisted the temptations of the devil, and therefore he is one that we can put our confidence in, because he alone fulfilled all the righteous requirements of God. He said to John the Baptist when he protested Jesus coming to be baptized by him, permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And Paul in Romans 5 says, As through the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, us, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. This is sometimes called by theologians the active righteousness of Christ, the active obedience of Christ. The passive obedience was when he allowed himself to be crucified. He could have called down legions of angels to come and rescue him, but he allowed himself to be taken captive and to be scourged and beaten and mocked and crucified and died. And he who could have come down allowed himself passively to die on our behalf. But Jesus also was actively righteous because he didn't just forgive us our sins. His righteousness is reckoned to our account when we place our faith in him. He doesn't just wash the slate clean. He transfers all of his righteousness to us because Jesus alone fulfills all the righteous requirements of the law. So there's an anecdote about a physics professor at a university who was especially rigorous in his testing of his students. And after class after class failed, he finally reached the point where he would allow them to come in with a single sheet front and back. And he says, you are allowed to put on this sheet anything you want and use it during your exam. 
And so people would get their fine point pens and try to write in six point font and to put every formula and every definition and every shortcut that he had. And test day came and one student came in with a stranger, a gentleman a little bit older, and he put a sheet of paper on the ground and the gentleman stood on it and this physics professor then took his test for him because the professor had said, you can use on your exam anything that will be on the sheet of paper. And so he used the physics professor who knew physics perfectly in a way that he would never be able to do. And that's what Jesus did for our behalf. We would never obey God perfectly. Our motives are never pure. We never do all that we should. We don't abstain from all the things we shouldn't do. And so God sent his son to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. But thirdly, and most fully, Jesus fulfills the intent of Scripture. The Hebrew Scriptures, the Law and the Prophets, are about Jesus. This is how D.A. Carson, the gentleman who's written the most esteemed evangelical commentary on Matthew, summarizes it. The best interpretation of these difficult verses says that Jesus fulfills the Law and the Prophets in that they point to Him, and He is their fulfillment. The antithesis is not between abolish and keep, but between abolish and fulfill. That nothing shall pass away from the law and the prophets until all is accomplished. For Matthew, then, it is not the question of Jesus' relation to the law that is in doubt, but rather its relation to him. Jesus presents himself as the eschatological goal of the Old Testament, and therefore its sole authoritative interpreter, the one through whom alone the Old Testament finds its valid continuity and significance. All the Hebrew scriptures are about Jesus. When the first Adam failed, Jesus, our surrogate, the second Adam, succeeded. The sacrificial system was leading up to the time when the final sacrifice would be offered, and then the sacrificial system would have been set aside because it's fulfilled its purpose. There was a priesthood that continued until the final high priest came, and then there's no more priest because the final priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for us forever. Anticipation, 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 fulfillment. There were Passover meals until the final Passover meal was served, and then Jesus, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed. And Jesus, our Passover now, has died and risen. We have been redeemed. We don't celebrate Passover anymore, but Good Friday and Easter. The Sabbaths were there on Saturday until Jesus came and rose from the dead. And now we celebrate the Lord's Day on Sunday, the eighth day of creation, the first day of the new covenant, because Jesus fulfilled all of the anticipations of the Sabbaths. Everything that the Old Testament was anticipating finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate prophet who reveals God's word authoritatively. He is the final high priest who now sits at the right hand of the throne of God and seeing for us forever. He is the final Davidic king who's going to come and establish peace and reign in righteousness forever and ever. Everything is anticipatory until Jesus. And then it's fulfilled because it's all been pointing to him. It's all been about him. Paul says this in Colossians 2, No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Those were just prefigurings. Those were just early glimpses of the dawn before the sun rose. And so uh, someone was at our house yesterday with blueprints of the remodeling of Denton Baptist Temple. And the architect is 
proceeding apace to submit his designs for creating children's rooms and a sanctuary. And I'm looking at these drawings, but these drawings aren't the substance. They're just the anticipation. There was a tabernacle, there was a temple until God, the Word, became flesh and tabernacled among us, and now they're fulfilled. And so Jesus fulfills Scripture in that He is the one that all of Scripture prior to Him was anticipating. And that everything back to, and now in the New Testament is pointing back to and explaining and exhorting people to submit to. And so Jesus is able to say, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus fulfills all the messianic prophecies and typologies of the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus fulfills the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf because we never could. And Jesus fulfills the very entirety of the Hebrew scriptures themselves that were all pointing to him. Uh, many people in here have gone to see Andrew Peterson's The Lamb of God or Behold the Lamb of God concert. You remember how he opens up the Jesus Storybook Bible and says, no, the Bible is not a book of rules. It's about a story. And at the center of the story is a baby. And then the, car, the guitar chord strikes and this hero of God's redemptive story steps onto the scene because it's all about him. And so Jesus now warns us because only he fulfills it, no one else is to tamper with it. He says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Heaven and earth is biblical shorthand for all of creation. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in between. And so he says that until heaven and earth pass away, the old things passed away and the new heaven and the earth will come, not the smallest letter, which is the Hebrew word yod, or the stroke, which is a seraph, just a little tail or a tag on a letter, shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, today we might say not the smallest dot on an I, not the half of a cross of a hashtag of a T shall pass away until all is accomplished because God's word is enduring. God is faithful and he will fulfill all and accomplish all that he has promised and prophesied. And no one has the authority to alter it. No one has the right to rescind it. People can protest it, but they can't change it. They can't rebel against it because God's word is going to be accomplished. And this is such an encouragement to us. So when Prudential Financial was trying to come up in the late 19th century with a symbol for something that was enduring, they chose the Rock of Gibraltar because that mighty piece of earth just represented something that would stand forever like Prudential Financial. But that rock's going to erode away to nothing before God's lease law fails to be accomplished. We look up at the sun and just assume it's going to be shining perpetually, but the stars in the heavens are going to expire and burn out before one least part of God's law fails to be accomplished. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever, which on the one hand gives us great hope and assurance that God is faithful and true, that he is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, and even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. God has committed himself to his word. He has sworn by himself because there's no other higher name by which he could swear. God will most certainly keep all of his promises to you, and that is so hopeful. But also, therefore, we must not tamper with any of God's rules, which is sobering. 
Jesus goes on to warn us of that. Look at verse 19. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now the word annul means to loose. It means to unbind something. Now, literally, it's used of the unbinding of a sandal or the unwrapping of a corpse, Lazarus, or the untying of a donkey that Jesus said is going to be the sign of the gentleman. He's going to have an upper room where we can celebrate the Last Supper together. From that literal meaning of loosing something that it was tying down and restricting came the more figurative meaning of loosing a law or requirement. And so loosing is the word used of a divorce that you lose someone from his marriage bounds. And Jesus warns that we are not to loose, to make permissible, even the smallest thing that God restricts, because who are we to tamper with the word of God? Uh, my brother David was at a youth group in Georgia one time, and the youth pastor stood up to the mixed audience of teens, and he stands there with his Bible, and he goes a little bit, and he finds a page, and he rips it out and tosses it. Stunned faces. Goes a few more. Tears out another one. Tosses it. A few more. Rips. Tosses. And by this point, the initial shock has worn out to protest, outrage, indignation, fear. You know, front row stepping back for the lightning bolts that are going to fall. And, and the youth pastor made the point, you're upset because I'm tearing out portions of God's word. But are you upset when all of our culture is doing that all around us? When they say that God made them male and female, and we dare say that gender is fluid? That God said that the man and the woman were to be husband and wife, and we dare redefine marriage because that's what people want? That God says this and we say this, and what we are doing effectively is we are ripping out the unwanted portions of God's word. Now, he then held up and said, and this wasn't a Bible, it was just a history book or something else. <laughs> but every time we reject God's law, we're doing that. Every time we say, I know God's word says, but I would really like to, we are annulling one of God's commands. We are tearing out that section of scripture. Every time we say, I know that the Bible says I should, but I really don't want to. Then we're taking a Sharpie and blackening out that portion of God's word. And who are we to do that? Jesus warns, not the least, because you will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember the first recorded words of Satan in scripture? Indeed, did God say? And what was he doing? He was loosening the restriction that God had given. And what did Eve do? She ate. And what was the first thing she did as a sinful person? She encouraged her husband to do likewise. And Jesus cautioned us. Don't tamper with even the least of these commandments. Because God will call that person, not necessarily condemned, but least in the kingdom of heaven. He's now talking about his disciples. But the one who keeps it. The one who honors God by obeying him, even when all the world rejects him. 
God's going to call that one great in the kingdom of heaven. Second Corinthians 16, 9 says that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Isn't that a great verse? Right now, Almighty God, his eyes are perpetually roaming the globe, so to speak. And what's he looking for? The person whose heart is fully his, who just wants what God wants, who just prays your will be done, who just wants God's name hallowed, who just wants God's name extended. And God says that one, I will not just support, which would be great. I will strongly support. It says in the book of Ezra that the good hand of the Lord was upon him. Five or six times that phrase is repeated. The good hand of the Lord was upon him. The good hand of the Lord was upon him. The good hand of the Lord was upon him. And why? What did Ezra do? Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God and to apply it and to teach it to others. This is the New Testament version of Ezra 7.10. He had set his heart. He had committed himself. I just want to know what God wants. And whatever that is, I just want to do. And then that'll give me the credibility to tell others to do it likewise. Because God is faithful. Remember what Job, or what God said of Job? Have you seen my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth, upright of heart and turning away from evil. That's the one that God is proud of. That's the one that God is boasting in. And that's what we need to be reminded of because our culture is now making it costly to obey God rather than loosening the things of God. There was an article that came out in First Things, which is a Christian intellectual journal last week, that's gotten a lot of press in the Christian blogosphere. And this author was recounting his understanding of the three stages of American secularization. And up until 1994, conservative Christianity was largely viewed positively. So whether or not everyone was an actual follower of Jesus Christ, actual followers of Jesus Christ were esteemed. They were modeled. They were who we wanted as den moms. They were the ones that we wanted as big brothers and big sisters. Uh, they were our role models on television. They at least modeled the things that pleased God. And then from 1994 to 2014, we've been viewed more or less neutrally. And some like us, some don't. But in general, we've had kind of an even standing in our society. But since the Obergefell decision, we are now viewed negatively and increasingly hostily. And so we're faced with a choice. Do you want to be considered great in God's eyes or the world's eyes? Do you want the culture to call you least or do you want God to call you least? And now it's become painful. Now there's a price. Now there's something we need to consider. And all you have to do for this world to love you is just do a little bit of loosening. A little bit of loosening on gender, a little bit of loosening on marriage, a little bit of loosening on family, a little bit of loosening on morality, a little bit of, well, actually a lot of loosening on the exclusivity of Christ, a little bit of loosening on authority, a little bit of loosening, loosening, loosening until, and the world will love you for it. But God says, no, that's not your word to loosen or to tighten. Conversely, if we want to please God, we will remain true though all the world turn against us. That's why Christ, when he said, if you manifest these virtues that are blessed, is the world going to love you? No, the world's going to persecute you. And you endure. You persist. 
you persevere, you stay true, you remain loyal, stay faithful, and God will honor that someday. Stay firm. And now Jesus construes or defines what the true righteousness is that God is going to expect. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness is being in a right standing with God because we are conformed completely to his will. God's will is revealed in God's word. So if we are faithful to what God teaches and to what God commands, then that makes us righteous in God's eyes. And the two adherents at that time that would have been most esteemed for their righteousness in the eyes of most Jews would have been the scribes and the Pharisees. So today those terms have a negative connotation. But at the time, these were, in the Middle Ages, you might say the priests and the monks. Or maybe the ministers and the missionaries. Or here at Dini, we might say the elders and the deaconesses. The scribes were not just the copyists. They were the scholars of the law. They were the experts in Torah. They were those who truly knew what God desired. And so they were esteemed by God's people. The Pharisees were famous for earnestly seeking after holiness, of obeying God's law assiduously. So we hear Pharisee think hypocrite. But at the time, these would have been those who would have been esteemed as perfectly adhering. If anyone's going to please God in our Jewish society of the first century, it was the scribes and the Pharisees. And yet Jesus warns, don't be like them. Don't be like them. So what's going on here? First of all, to understand verse 20, we need to look ahead to what Jesus is going to say next. Jesus is about to explain God's interpretation of the law and therefore of righteousness that is going to contrast with that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees emphasized an external righteousness which is why Jesus would later say of them, you are whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but inside you're dead and corrupt. And so Jesus is going to say, you have heard that the ancients were told, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, do not murder, but I say, don't hate. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say, don't lust. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I say to you, love your enemies. And so in the next section, Jesus is going to contrast the true righteousness that's pleasing to God in contrast with the pharisaical righteousness that was emphasizing the external to the neglect of the heart. Because true righteousness is heartfelt. Then he's going to go on in chapter 6 to talk about religious practices, fasting, tithing, praying. And he's going to say, it's possible to do all those things, but if you're doing it to impress others rather than to please God, then you have your reward in full. Whatever attention you got from your spectators, that's your full reward. Because God who sees in secret rewards those who honor him in secret. So don't let your religious practice be for the sake of others, but for God. Then he's going to talk about our relationship with the world, that you can't serve God and wealth, and therefore seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Then he's going to talk about the way we look at other people and their walks with God, and we're not to judge lest we be judged. We're not to be focusing on their specs, but on our logs. And so Jesus is setting up the contrasting righteousness that God values versus what the Pharisees and the scribe valued in the coming verses. And that's part of what's going on here. But then we also need to look back. Truly I say to you, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. 
But can our righteousness be sufficient to enter into the kingdom of God? That's where we need to remember what's come before. We can't yank the verse out of context. How did Jesus begin the Beatitudes? Blessed are thee, poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who acknowledge that they are unworthy of God's grace. Blessed are those who are ready to recognize that we bring nothing to God. That we can just simply like the sinner in the temple, beat our breasts and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And those who mourn over their sins, those who are contrite over their wrongdoings, those who truly repent of displeasing God, what does God do to them? He comforts them. And so this isn't a verse calling us to earn our own righteousness. We can't. We are to be reminded that we are poor in spirit, and therefore we have to entrust ourselves entirely on Jesus Christ, who was righteous on our behalf. And this is the tension of the gospel. Because on the one hand, we need to avoid a legalism that says, if you were just more obedient, if you were just more assiduous, if you were just more diligent, if you were just more persnickety, if you were just more of an ascetic, then you could earn your way into heaven. And the Bible says no. There are none righteous, no, not one. There are none of who have obeyed God. None of us are perfectly pleasing to God. And so none of us can stand before God, our judge, on our own uh, righteousness. But we also need to avoid the other extreme of what's sometimes called free grace, of licentiousness, of because God has forgiven me, therefore I can go and do whatever I want. That grace is free, it's unconditional, but it's not cheap. And we are exhorted as those who are saved to pursue righteousness, to honor God. And this is the two sides of the gospel. That God justifies us as sinners. He declares us righteous. That when we admit that we are sinners and ask Jesus Christ to be our Savior, God forgives us our sins. And the righteousness of Christ is reckoned to our account. But then he also regenerates us. He makes us new creations in Christ. And now he begins to sanctify us. And having been justified by Christ, he begins to conform us to the image of Christ so that we become more and more like him. And in our affections and in our actions and in our loves and in our thoughts and in our speech, we're becoming more and more like Christ because that's what we do out of gratitude. It has nothing to do with merit. It just has to do with thankfulness. So last night at the men's event, uh, one of our brothers gave his testimony. And it was such a powerful word because this is someone that we all esteem as a worker, as a man, as a husband, as a father. And he gave us the BC portion of his history. And before Christ, these were the mistakes I made. And these were the choices that I decided. And these were the decisions where they drove me. And then how God spared him. And he was so patient with him. And he was so kind and he was so forgiving. And then there was that moment of trans transformation where God redeemed him and reached down and saved him. And now, not to earn his salvation, he opened his testimony by saying, I could never do that. Not to keep his salvation. Because those who are in the hand of God, no one can snatch them out. But in appreciation for his salvation, he wants to be a good and better man, a good and better husband, a good and better father, a good and better servant. Because that's what Christians are. We're not allowed to look down on anyone because we are sinners like everyone else. We are not more deserving of God's mercy than anyone else. But we acknowledged our need of mercy. 
we acknowledged our unrighteousness. We were poor in spirit. We asked God to save us and he comforted us. And now, out of gratitude, we don't want to go on displeasing him. We want to go and to make him more and more honored in our life, in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, so that he gets all the glory that he can, and so that it gives us credibility to tell others of where they can find transformation as well. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. They can't be abolished. They can only be accomplished, and they can only be accomplished by the one in whom was their focus, Jesus Christ, and he fulfilled it. Jesus is the one who fulfills all the messianic prophecies and types. Jesus is the one who fulfills the righteousness of the requirements of the law on your behalf. Jesus is the one who fulfills the intent and purposes of Scripture. And so, as a result of that, we acknowledge our complete and utter dependence on Christ because our righteousness will never surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, at least sufficiently to earn God's favor. But having been saved, having been born again, having been adopted into the family of God, we now hunger and thirst for righteousness. We now seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We now desire to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees in the sense that it's heartfelt and not just external. That we do our religious deeds to please God and not to impress others. That we commit ourselves to loving God and not this world. And that we look on others not judgmentally, but focusing on our own sins because we know we're not perfect yet. This is the good news that Jesus is introducing now and we'll unpack further next week. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word that endures forever. We thank you that it is so firm and enduring that none may set it aside, none may amend it, none may alter it. Uh, no creative hermeneutic can limit its application. You are absolute and eternal, and your world is absolute and enduring. And we thank you for its fulfillment so far in Christ, that the Old Testament has been replaced by the New Testament. The Old Covenant has been superseded by the New Covenant, because the first Moses, who anticipated the second Moses, now gladly steps to his side. And at the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, defer to the one to whom they were writing. We thank you that Jesus is our righteousness. We thank you that we don't have to stand on our own merit. We thank you for your mercy. But we thank you that in your mercy you make us new creations of Christ to begin to make us more like your son. And so, Father, without any sense of self-righteousness or judgmentalism, would we earnestly pursue to please you more and more, to make it our ambition to please you, to honor you with our lives that others might come to the Savior and experience the same transforming mercy that we ourselves have experienced. We thank you for this and pray for the grace to follow this in your son's name. Amen.